Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And welcome to episode 37, much anticipated. We are so excited for this one. Uh, It's been a long time coming for Repo, the genetic opera. I'm so excited. I haven't seen this movie in so long. And between this and the trailers at the beginning of the movie, I feel like it's coming home to 18-year-old Teresa in 2008 (laughs) watching the movies I was watching back then. So it was unlocking a lot of like hidden or forgotten memories while I was watching it. It was nice. It was very nostalgic for me. I felt like this was kind of nostalgic in a kind of weird way for me because we're recording this, you know, right after Phantom of the Opera has closed on Broadway after a 35-year run. And so I've been like watching a lot of TikToks about the closing, like diving back into my like musical theater core a little bit and so to do a musical was extra fun and of course to have that through line of sarah brightman original london phantom of the opera cast this was her first motion picture very very cool so it's kind of like hitting all the things for me too secret i have never actually seen phantom of the opera in any iteration the movie or live so have you seen any of the movies no okay not even the old universal okay So I am a phantom virgin. (laughs) Well, we will remedy that at some point. Okay. That is the episode that I am really, really hoping I can convince my mom to be a guest (gasps) on because she and I are phantom of the opera maniacs and we both have like strong feelings about the movie and the musical. So that would be so exciting. Yeah. Mama from Holt, please come on the show. Yeah. Talk about phantom of the opera with us because that would be amazing. That's very exciting. I'm working on it. We'll see. (laughs) So I was not ever in a musical and I'm not much of a singer. Like I did choir for a few years and then I just dropped out of it because I was like, I'm not as good. So the high school that I went to actually had a really strong choral program Mm -hmm. and we had like the Choraliers, which was sort of like our show choir, sort of, kind of, but more competition based and Mr. Fett, Mr. Basil Fett was our choir director and he was like kind of world renowned and was Mm. like very, very good. Later, there have been stories. I will not go into those. Those (laughs) are not my stories to tell. Yikes. But anyways, we had an extremely competitive choral Mm -hmm. program and our musicals as a product of that were like very, very good, very high level. So there weren't a lot of parts for people who were like not really singers. So I I ended up being like stagehand for the most part. And that was just mostly so I could hang out with my musical friends, (laughs) you know, because you'd have like friends that you actually hang out with on a day to day basis. And then you'd have musical friends where you're like, I don't actually hang out with this person normally, but yeah, yeah. By way of musical, I'm going to hang out with them, especially underclassmen or older, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Totally. So, yeah, I was mostly a stagehand. I loved watching musicals. I like to be there to participate, but I wasn't much of a singer actor myself. Yeah. So I was always really embarrassed, too embarrassed to act. <laughs> I mean, same still. I'm way too embarrassed to act. I'm not an actor. So <laughs> I can do a podcast, but that's because I don't have to show my face. Sure, sure, sure. 
I get it. I get it. But your musical theater journey was much different than yeah. mine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in all of them. And I did backstage stuff, too. But I was in every musical and every play in high school and was going to actually major in musical theater in college. And for a variety of reasons, ended up not doing that, which was actually the best choice for me, ultimately. But yeah, musicals have been a part of my existence since I mean, like my mom has been taking me to see musicals since I was a little, little kid and like playing me cast albums and stuff like that. And I love that world. I love what you can do and the types of stories you can tell via a musical. And I love looking at the difference between a cinematic musical versus a theatrical musical, because I think there are distinct differences in what you can and can't do and how you use a theatrical setting to tell a story versus how you use a cinematic setting to tell a story. Yeah, I'm all in. Like, I apologize ahead of time because I will probably go off on some very (laughs) nerdy diversions in this episode. Well, what was, do you remember what the first musical is that you ever saw? Mm. Whether that be via home media or like in person? not sure. Okay. The one I can remember seeing in person, though I don't know if it was the first one, like the kind of first big core memory was seeing Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. I've seen it several times, and that's one that I like because, like many musicals, that one very specifically because it's a rock opera. You can Mm -hmm. stage it so many different ways and set it so many different ways. I saw it live before I ever saw the movie, but I feel like I had listened to the cast album ahead of time. Like, I can't remember what the first cast album I ever heard was because it's just kind of like always been there somewhere (laughs) in my background. The first one I ever saw was Les Mis. I was in either sixth or seventh grade. Mm -hmm. It came to Dayton and I was in a gifted program. And so like as a field trip for the gifted program, we were allowed to go and see it. So it wasn't like the full Les Mis. It was like Les Mis for children, basically. Uh So the cast was doing like the whole thing at the Victoria Theater, but this was geared towards schools. Yeah. So it was like the school version of it that happened in the middle of the day. So I was able to see that. That's the first one. Do I remember any of it? No. Have I seen (laughs) any of the iterations since then? No. As kind of a rule, I don't watch a lot of sad stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Lame is is not. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Now, having said that, does that mean I don't enjoy Moulin Rouge? No. Because Moulin Rouge, I find to be incredibly entertaining and heartwarming in parts during the course of the movie. It's not just like sad, starvation, death the entire way through. Yes. And songs about it. Yes. So I can engage with that. And like Rent, I obviously Mm -hmm. love Rent. It's near and dear to my heart. But I don't mess with Lame is. That's fair. I don't have with Lame is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there are people that love Lame is, and it's got good music, but it's not my favorite show yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. Like, there are so many shows that I love so much better than Lame is. Like, yeah. it's good, and I've seen it, and I've seen it staged a couple of times. And again, like, depending on the staging, it can be really good, and the music's nice, but. I don't know. It's just not my favorite, sure. you know. Moulin Rouge, on the other hand. Yeah. We don't need to talk about how many times I've seen that in the theater. Sorry, Joe G. Did Joe G have to go with you? Yes, he did. Yeah. If you're out there listening, Joe G, thank you for your years of servitude. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you for your service. <laughs> 
the next one that I remember, like, very specifically, because my parents were not musical theater people. Mm -hmm. So, like, we went through this whole phase when I was in high school of watching, like, a ton of musicals, but they were all, like, weird stuff. So the next couple that I remember very specifically were this one, Mm -hmm. which this came out in the year I graduated. Oh, okay. It's perfect timing. Prior to this, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Of Of course. course. Which I came by way of Scary Movie 2, I think is what Tim Curry... Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So we were watching Scary Movie 2, and my best friend's mom is like, hey, I love Tim Curry. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, Rocky Horror Picture Show. I was 13, 14, and I was like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Welcome to the door opening to the ruination of the entire rest of my life. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) No, yeah, like for real, though, some key discoveries were unlocked during the watching of that movie. Story of many, many people's lives. Yeah, like... Am I gay? I'm a little gay after watching this movie. (laughs) And then Tommy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which I was super familiar with The Who. That was something that was on at my house when I was a kid all the time. So I was familiar with the discography. But somebody was like, yeah, it's about a blind kid who's basically Jesus, but also he plays pinball. And I was like, (laughs) excuse me? Yeah. What? Those words don't go together in that order? Yeah. Like, Okay, like he goes blind because he sees his mom having sex and then he becomes Jesus and there's pinball and Elton John's in it. And I was like, this sounds very strange. (laughs) It was a wild ride. But anyways, I know we're super off topic, but my encounters with musicals have been sparse, but very strange. And this just kind of goes right along with it. (laughs) Because I feel like even if you are a musical fan, this might be one that slipped totally under the radar for you. Yeah. Because it's not a Sondheim, you know? No. It's not an Andrew Lloyd Webber joint. It doesn't have a ton of, like, really high-key, well-known musical theater actors and actresses in it. A few, a handful. Yeah. Sarah Brightman, obviously. Anthony Stewart Head, who acted in a ton of Broadway stuff. Yes. And was very active in the West End Theater in London and was actually in their version of Rocky Horror Picture Show as Frankenfurter, which if I could have a time machine (laughs) and transport myself back into the 80s and see, I would die. I would die. Yeah. But anyways, so not a lot of like really high key actors, not a lot of super popular actors for 2008 either. We have Paris Hilton, who, if you don't know who Paris Hilton is, just don't even worry about it. Her uh, life has been so fraught. But other than that, Alexa Vega, who was extremely popular after the Spy Kids movie, she played the female child lead in the Spy Kids movies, and Paul Sorvino, which is kind of an out of left field choice. Paul Sorvino being famous for any number of mafia mob movies who recently departed, but he was in Goodfellas, probably most famously. He's Mira Sorvino's dad, incredible singer for some reason. Like, I don't know how I didn't know this. Late but... 80s, early 90s kids will know him as Juliet's father in the Bosler men, Romeo and Juliet. I think this episode should be called How Many Times Can We Say Bosler Men Truly. in One Episode? Oh, try me. I will. <laughs> I will go the distance on this one. <laughs> So yeah, it's got a very strange kind of spread out cast. Alexa Vega, who plays Shiloh Wallace, Paul Sorvino, who plays Roddy Largo, the head of the Largo family, Anthony Head, who plays Nathan slash the Repo Man, Mm -hmm. Sarah Brightman plays Blind Mag, Paris Elton plays Amber Sweet, Bill Mosley, who you'll know from any number of indie slash underground slash underfunded horror films, such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. 
who plays Luigi Largo. I'm going to say Kevin Ogre, because I guess that's how he was credited as Pavi. Just Ogre from Skinny Puppy. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. With a strange Italian accent. Yeah. And I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but Terrence, I'm going to go for it, Zdunich. Or maybe just Dunwich. It could be that the Z is silent, um, who plays the grave robber. That's basically the main cast of characters to the movie. So it's very eclectic in terms of its cast. Terrence Dunwich is also one of the writers and sort of the co-creators of Repo, kind of going all the way back from its stage iteration, too. And he is an illustrator. He did all of the comic illustrations, the kind of interstitials let's say in between Mm -hmm. the story to kind of give you the characters backstories he has also worked on a couple of other sort of goth horror musicals since repo there's one called i want to say it's like the devil's carnival that he and the other repo co-creators made uh, that was kind of a straight to dvd slash home media musical project interesting okay so he's got some other stuff under his belt Mm mm-hmm And this one actually was originally intended to be a straight-to-DVD film. Yes. And I did not see this in the theater. I waited until it was on DVD or it was, like, on demand or something. It had a really fast DVD release, if I recall. I don't think it screened here at all. Okay. Because somehow I don't even remember how I saw the trailer for this, I guess. Well, Apple trailers were a thing in, like, 2007, 2008. Eight, you know, it was the best way to watch a trailer. It was, yeah, yeah. So I definitely saw a trailer for this before it came out, and I remember looking for it, and it never screened here. Um, so I didn't get to see it until it was out on DVD. So you probably would not have had an opportunity to see it in the theater around here. That's fair, and it actually did incredibly badly in the theater. Yeah, um, unfortunately, it had a budget of eight and a half million dollars, and it made less than two hundred thousand. It made like one hundred eighty-eight thousand dollars. So. It was pretty much a failure, I would say, in terms of like box office stuff. If you compare like in order to make back a movie's budget, you not only have to make back the budget, but you have to make way more than the budget. Right. You have to to make a profit on top of the budget. (laughs) Yeah. So it was uh, it did not do well, which is especially strange because the actual musical that this came from did very, very well. Yeah. It existed for many years. I think it was from 2002. It ran from 2002 to 2007. Which is a pretty good run. Yeah. That's a pretty prolific run for something that's like fairly indie. I think part of it was the lack of advertising. Mm. So I know that the filmmakers expressed a lot of frustration with Lionsgate that they got basically no marketing support and they Mm. had to put their own money up to market this film. They even went so far as to do a bunch of tours where they would have some of the cast members like performing it live, almost like a rock opera record ahead of a film screening, or they would be there at the film screening. It seems to me, and I can't recall the intricacies of what was happening at Lionsgate at this time, other than they were really riding the saw wave Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, And this is like a Twisted Pictures production, you know, co-production with Lionsgate, but They didn't get a lot of marketing support. And it seems like they didn't get a lot of distribution support because its original U.S. opening was only seven theaters. Wow. And then they expanded it out to a more proper, air quotes, limited theatrical run. But it was still like, obviously, we didn't get it here. So it was limited was pretty limited. These days, when there's a limited theatrical run, typically at least one of our theaters around here 
will get something for a limited time, even if it's just like a weekend only, you know, a three day Friday, Saturday, Sunday screening. It was nowhere here. Mm -hmm. So they were keeping it pretty, pretty limited. So I can see why it didn't do well, because not a lot of people had a chance to see it. And with a movie like this, this is made for weirdos, like a very specific type of weirdo. And if you're not accessible to where these weirdos are, you know, in tiny little pockets around the country, you know, you're not going to get this movie to them. Yes, there are a lot more weirdos in New York and L.A. And certainly, you know, people are going to go see it there. But like this is a movie for like goth musical theater kids, essentially. And those folks are scattered around the country in some of the smallest towns. And so if you're not getting it to them, your movie's not going to do well, because that's who this is for, in my opinion, at least. Right. Yeah. So in terms of this being a weird musical in and of itself, I think I mentioned to you while we were watching this, musicals inherently, I think, are a little weird. Yeah. Like there's, <laughs> Yes, they are. <laughs> there's a little bit of insanity that has to be built into a musical. And by that, I mean, like, not all of the songs necessarily make sense. Not all of the motivations of the characters make sense. When I think of a musical, I'm not thinking of, like, a movie where we have a conflict and a resolution. A lot of times with musicals, you don't get that. There's, like, a messiness to them and sort of a craziness. And you just have to ignore it or just roll with it because you're like, this is a musical. I know what I'm getting into this is how it's going to be. I think those elements are there, like a conflict and a resolution in a good Mm -hmm. musical, Mm -hmm. you know, like a good musical still has to tell a good story with a beginning, middle and an end and a conflict and an arc and a resolution. However, you have to get past the fact that people don't, most people don't spontaneously burst into song in real life. Right. And that so much of that conflict and resolution is told not through words or traditional cinematic elements. It's told both through song, through dance, through staging, which is why I think it can be so hard to translate a stage musical to a movie musical and have it work. Because it's exactly what you're saying, is that sometimes when you bring something on screen, um, I'm thinking of the newer Into the Woods movie in particular, you're just like, what the hell is this? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you watch Into the Woods on stage, even the Into the Woods PBS version with Bernadette Peters and Joanna Gleason that was filmed on stage, there's something about that stage setting where you're like, oh, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. This is a story. I get this story. All these people are singing at once and it's fine. But as soon as you try to make it look like a movie, you're just like, what in God's name am I witnessing right now? And it seems absurdist Mm -hmm. in the most case. There are exceptions. There are ones that work. I think Little Shop of Horrors is a beautiful movie musical, but they change things specifically Mm -hmm. to, they were smart enough to adapt things to work in the cinematic space rather than the stage musical space. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to that because the narrator is something that I want to touch on in good musical. But in particular, I think we're spoiled when it comes to movie musicals because the musicals that make it to being a movie end up being some of the highest grossing, the longest running, the most well-known, the most well-loved to the point where they get to that, you know? If they make it. Yeah. Because there are so many that have failed that people forget about, too. Exactly. So, like, we think Phantom of the Opera, which I know you don't like. (laughs) Um, Little Shop of Horrors. We think of that. We think of Rocky Horror Picture Show, which that is a fluke. I'll die on the hill that Rocky Horror Picture Show had no business being as big as it ever ever got. (laughs) 
that doesn't mean that I don't love it. No. But like, I do. I 100% I will go to my grave being a Rocky Horror stan forever. Yeah. But it had no business getting as popular <laughs> as it ended up being. We are better for it for this happy yeah. accident of fate. <laughs> exactly. But those are the musicals that end up making it to be a movie. It's like really, really tight already gone through the ringer, already gone through rewrites and yeah. and song changes and the tumultuousness of having to go on tour and things like that. They've gone through the ringer. This movie, it already had the indie story aspect. It had that going for it. Yeah. And then it makes it to be a movie and it's so freaking weird. It suffers from all of these things that musicals that most of the time we just forget about the weird story. Yeah. The strangeness of being a musical in the first place. Mm -hmm. Lack of advertising. I don't think that this musical, although it ran for five years, I don't think it was like a huge, like massive success in terms of it touring. Was, it was off-Broadway. Right. So that's so, a different level of musicals. Like when you're talking about a musical having a stage theatrical run, mm -hmm. there are different levels, you know. There's off-Broadway, there's off-off-Broadway, there's like avant-garde, you know, there are smaller productions, things like that. No, this was not, this was not 35 years at the Majestic, right. you know, this yeah. was, this was a different level. You know, this wasn't Hamilton either, mm -hmm. for example. Right. And it also suffered from not having big name actors. Yeah. We talked about Sweeney Todd, which came out the year before this, which blows my mind that this came out that Sweeney Todd came out the year before this but it had Johnny Depp, Helena Bottom Carter, Alan Rickman, some of the biggest named actors in the world at the time. And Sweeney Todd was also a musical that everybody at least theater people knew and loved, you know, it's yeah. Stephen Freakin Sondheim. Angela yeah. Lansbury was, you know, one of the seminal cast members. You yeah. know, it was not the movie Sweeney Todd was not introducing the concept and the story of Sweeney Todd to most audiences. Right. I would say even most mass market audiences would know, oh, Sweeney Todd's a huge Broadway musical by this huge composer. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people that heard about Repo were like, what is this? Yeah. It's a movie and didn't even know like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a stage show already. Yeah. So all that to say... It's still worth your time. Repo, the genetic oh, is. opera, is totally worth your time, even though it suffered from a thousand things that made it unfortunately unsuccessful and unfortunately not able to tell the full aspect yes. of the story. But also, you must understand when you watch a movie musical that there are so many compromises that have to be made mm -hmm. in order to fold the expansiveness of a musical into a perfect package for a movie. And we were talking about this while we were watching it. Unfortunately, sometimes that's not successful. Yeah. There are some things that can only be told in the 3D picture that is a musical stage. Yeah. And not in the 2D version that you get in a movie. No matter how pretty it looks or gory or bloody or what have you, it doesn't translate the same. Yeah. And there's also something to be said for capturing or figuring out how to compensate for the energy of a live performance. Not to keep harping on Phantom of the Opera, but that is one of my biggest complaints about the Phantom of the Opera movie is that it is devoid of all magic for me. Like... Seeing something like that in a theater where you're in it and as an audience member, you're like an active participant in it. And I'm not saying like it's like a sing-along or anything, but when you're in a space where the story is being told, it's just very different. And I 
kind of wish that they would mount a new production of Repo because I would like to experience this music in a physical space with people because I think it would be very different. And I think some of the places where the songs fall a little flat, I think through staging and just being there, they wouldn't. And I think the songs that really hit hard, like Zydrate Anatomy, like I would love to see that in person. Like it would be phenomenal to like experience that happening before you and unfolding before you. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said when you're in a musical or in an operetta where you're singing the entire time. Yes. There's something to be said about having that interaction with an audience or a narrator, which I'm going to come back to. Yes, yes. Um, I definitely do want to talk about the narrator thing. Because there are songs in this movie that are incredible that really, like, I think Paul Sorvino, like, I don't know if he's ever done anything else where he sings. Not that I can tell. Right? If that's really him singing and they didn't have somebody come in and dub, which I don't think so. I don't think they did. It's incredible. Like, truly, he is a very, very, very talented musical actor. Yeah. That's hard to do, to both act and also to sing. Especially in the way of, like, acting in a movie versus acting in a musical, which are two totally different things. Yep. I feel like acting in a movie is so much more subtle, not to say that one is better than the other. No, you're right. But musical acting is so much more physical, so much more grandiose because you're acting for somebody who's not two feet in front of you on a TV screen, on a movie screen. You're acting for the person in the very way back of the audience. It's the same reason why early, early cinema, especially silent cinema, can look so weird to a modern audience is because those were stage actors. Those were, you know, vaudeville actors, essentially and they were used to acting big Mm -hmm. for an audience. And so early cinema was an experiment in taking that and putting it on camera. And then as cinema evolved, cinema acting evolved to get into that, oh, we can get really close and we can get more nuanced performances. But yeah, people were just figuring it out at that point. And I think it is the same thing, like musical acting. Yeah, you're supposed to be big, huge, larger than life. Yeah. And moving around, interacting with the set, interacting with other people. The other folks are also interacting and reacting to what you're doing. So it's just totally different. I know I'm harping on about this, but I'm just (laughs) I'm just kind of underscoring the idea that really give this movie a chance. Understand that there are many hoops that you have to jump through in order to be able to get to a successful adaptation of a musical in a movie. And even if you've only seen Phantom or Sweeney Todd or whatever, you should give this one a Absolutely. chance. The story is so very interesting. Mm-hmm. You have these kind of like three main storylines that are happening. You have Shiloh and her dad, who there's this kind of push and pull. Shiloh is sickly. Her dad is, she thinks, a doctor, but actually the repo man. And he's trying to keep her safe, but there's more happening in that story. Parallel, we have this whole like big world idea of genetic repossession, getting these loaned organs. And then if you default, then the repo man comes and takes your organs away, which is like a big enough idea in the first place. I mean, I think that that idea is literally what inspired the repo movie that ended up having what's his face in it. Oh, the like action one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of what that was. Never saw it. So I'm just going based off of the few trailers that I saw. So you have that going on. And then you also have Roddy and his family and Roddy is dying and his family all are shitty and they they're kind of clamoring for the helm of the ship that is this huge company which is 
who is doing the repossession of all of these genetic organs. They are the ones who developed it. So you have like these three kind of parallel competing storylines that are happening all in an hour and a half movie. But if you had a whole musical, you could potentially explore all three of these things simultaneously. And I think really give them the attention and the care from the audience that they deserved. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could use staging and sets and things like that to tell the story without having to get bogged down. Like, There was a lot they did with these comic um, kind of title cards. And I think there was a different way to stage that like in a musical setting. But I actually think if they had tried to translate that directly into the movie, it wouldn't have worked either. So I think this was kind of a compromise. It didn't quite work, but it it worked enough. There's this thing that happens in musicals a lot when you have these parallel storylines, because generally there are parallel storylines happening. Oh, absolutely. Happening, yes. Where you have like the three people that these are affecting sing all together at once. And th- you make a song, you write a song that kind of reflects the struggles that all three people are having. But we don't really get that in the in this right. movie version. I'm sure that there probably are instances where this happens in the musical, like in the stage iteration. Uh-huh that I think could be really powerful, but you never really get that here where we have like Roddy, Shiloh, and Nathan singing all at once. And I think that that could have been really powerful, like in three separate settings, singing about the same thing. I think you're definitely onto something. So I'm going to use Into the Woods as an example. So the opening of Into the Woods, you've got kind of three stories happening. And all three stories are being established at the same time in the same song. And everybody's singing at once. You've got Cinderella's story. You've got Jack and the Beanstalk story, essentially. And then the baker and his wife and the witch. And it's literally one song. But the thing that works in the stage version is everybody is on stage at the same time. And depending on how it's staged, you can do it different ways. But in the production I was in, it's like, Everybody's kind of in their own dwelling, in their own house, but they're all side by side on stage. So you as an audience member understand, oh, these are three different families in three different physical spaces, but they're all part of a united story. Well, in a movie, you can't do that. And so what you end up doing, like in, I think the song is called This Is Opera Tonight in Repo, is that you have all of this cross-cutting happening. And it almost gives the audience whiplash Mm -hmm. because you're having to cut back and forth depending on who's singing. You gotta, you know, you gotta cut to Mag and then you gotta cut to Roddy and then you have to cut to Shiloh and Nathan and they're all in different places. Well, when it's on stage, the audience gets to see all of it unfold at once rather than cross-cut, cross-cut, cross-cut. And it just works better. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with you. And I think that that is the rub of having a director who might be talented at one thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I think this director did Saw 3. He did that. And it was successful. But it's very difficult to be good at both adapting a musical for the screen and also directing a musical and also directing a film. Yes. Um, And I think that the movie kind of suffers for that, which is unfortunate because... It is so freaking weird and such a crunchy storyline, like such a cool near future, especially now, 15 years later. Yeah. Like a very cool idea. And I think now, especially, we can kind of appreciate the post-capitalist, like, because in 2008, I don't think we had 
fully understood or fully realized. We weren't realized. ready for that message yet. <laughs> yeah, we, we weren't ready for the message. And we also really hadn't fully understood the ramifications of what was happening in 2008. Yeah. So like me, I was graduating high school in 2008. I was like, I will get a job after I go to college. That's not a thing that happened. Yeah. I mean, I did get a job, but it wasn't like the high school to college to job pipeline that we were kind of promised. So 2008, I had graduated college. I was in my first job getting ready to be laid off by the end of the year because we were in the midst of the recession. You know, gas was skyrocketing at the time. I was one of those millennials that was, you know, obviously not being paid at all what I should have in my first job, but being told, well, be grateful, you know for making next to nothing. We were all told, well, you should be like buying houses and starting families. And you're like, with what money? But like, we definitely weren't ready to receive or think about at that point. Some people were, but like most of us were not thinking about systemic capitalism, right? <laughs> especially in the United States. This was pre-Obamacare, healthcare reform, and then backsliding, which I think is at the core of this movie is the capitalism of healthcare. Like we were not talking about that. We were all suffering under it, but we definitely weren't talking about it or thinking about it as a systemic issue. So in that regard, this movie was so ahead of its time, and it was actually really, really fun to watch it now. I mean, a little depressing, if I'm being quite honest, because I was like, okay, so this movie takes place in 2056, which is 33 years in the future, and like, truly, this shit could happen. Oh, yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, all of your organs are actually owned by a corporation who can repossess them at any time. It could happen tomorrow. And I'd be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's somebody is working on this right now. Yeah. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are going to own your organs. And yeah, but the difference is going to be that there's going to be nanobots that just shut them off. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's not going to be like somebody who has to come and carve it. They would never need to do something like that. We'll just have nanobots that turn it off for you. Yeah. So. Well, Amazon Prime you your new organ and then just remote use your Alexa to turn it off. Or your Apple Watch. See, other thing, we didn't have wearable tech. Oh yeah, back then that, that was an amazing thing. Yeah, that, the watch thing. I literally am wearing an Apple Watch right yeah. now, and I was like, oh, that's so weird. It's like um, Star Trek kind of predicting iPads. Yep, exactly. You know? It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think that you're totally right. I don't think we were ready to talk about like post-capitalist failure of capitalist healthcare in America. Well, and complicity. So Nathan's story is so interesting. Like on the one hand, like he's kind of an archetypal character. You know, he is the reluctant servant, you know, beholden to some kind of, you know, overlord or master doing work that he is good at, but feels, you know, morally ambiguous about. But on the other hand, really looking at it with a post-capitalist context, like his complacency and participation in a system he doesn't agree with, but yet is forced to participate in just feels so real. Yep. Like it was so great. Totally. Yeah. You can fully put yourself in Nathan's shoes and be like, yeah, no, I could see that. You know, like being in a situation where like healthcare bills, let's just talk about yeah, like, if, absolutely. We, if we make this fully real, like, okay, so you get sick. And you have health care bills because your insurance doesn't cover all of your health care costs. And then you owe the hospital $30,000. Yep. How are you going to pay that back? Well, you're going to go to work at a job that you hate, yeah. that you don't agree with, in a system that you don't care about. 
and you're going to just grind through it because you have to make those payments. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening here to a ludicrous level. But yeah, yeah, it's exactly what's happening. I mean, this is truly an example of the thing we've been saying over and over again, which is there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Every character in this movie is participating in this system, whether they want to be or not. The only one that I would say isn't as actively participating and yet we find out, of course, she is a part of all this, is Shiloh at the very beginning. She's kind of set up to be our sort of because of her isolation and her father trying trying to keep her apart from this system, our sort of initially like pure character, even though we find out she's all tied up in this too. Right. Even though she didn't mean to be, she right. just is. Right. By virtue of her existence, she's a part of this system. She, you know, never consented to being a part of this system, but she's a part of it nonetheless. Yeah, I agree. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. Nope. And everybody is a part of a system that they're either actively participating in or benefiting from. Yes. And or they are also being crushed by and like eventually are going to be killed under one way or the other because in this particular reality i think we're led to believe that people are pushing the limits of like aging yes and lifespan in order to live longer or not let their bodies age as fast and also i think there's an underlying idea here that people are becoming sick from man-made yes things oh yeah and or being poisoned one way or the other. Like, it doesn't seem like a healthy world that they're living in. No, definitely not. And they're purchasing these organs or blood or what have you from Gene Co. to continue to live and inevitably getting to the point where they're in debt, where they just can't pay, and then the Repo Man comes. Yeah. Which, what a really cool villain slash anti-hero. Yeah, exactly. I did just want to say really quick, Anthony Stewart had... If you haven't seen this movie, you might know him as Giles from Buffy, which we love him in. The creators of this movie actually decided that they wanted Anthony Stewart Head to be Nathan because of Once More with Feeling. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the most well-loved episodes of Buffy. But I really feel like he never got the recognition that he deserved as an actor, as a musical actor. I just love him. I feel like he's my fairy god watcher. Like, I wish that I had a grandpa close to him, you know? Yeah. He's just truly the best. And that's the reason why I watched this movie in the first place. I didn't care about Paris Hilton. I didn't care about Alexa Vega. I cared about Anthony Stewart Head or Anthony Head as he's credited in in this film. And that's why I watched it is just because of him. And I, I love him. And I wish that he was in everything all the time. He should be. He definitely should be musicals, movies, all of the things. Somebody call Anthony Head's agent right now. Yeah. We're speaking it into existence. Yeah. Let's hope that it can happen. Yeah, this musical, it kind of happened after a lot of successful musical movies. Um, Moulin Rouge being in 2002, which this movie definitely takes a lot of cues. It does. From that movie. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then... Once again, Sweeney Todd, which is is so baffling to me that that happened in 2007. But I really feel like the creators and the director and probably the studio, too, at this point, were like, you know what? Horror musicals are coming back. Let's make a horror musical. There were a lot of horror musicals that were in development, not yet to screen, but actually on Broadway or off Broadway that were still being developed. And this came much later, but like Evil Dead made uh-huh. it to the stage. Yep, I've you know, seen it. Lots of well-loved movies were being adapted for the stage at this point. And so they're like, you know what? 
let's try it. Yeah. Let's go for it. Because Sweeney Todd, incredibly successful. Yes. And a very weird story. Oh, yeah. Depressing, yeah. downtrodden. Yes. Cannibalism. Yeah. Like, a happy one that is not. Yeah. I mean, Joanna, she gets her, you know, her happy ending, but literally not without else. a lot of trauma along <laughs> yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. Nobody else gets a happy ending, but Joanna does. Yeah. But that's it, you know? And that's also got the Tim Burton name behind yes. it, the Johnny Depp name, blah, blah, blah. You could go on forever about that one, but they're like, you know what? Let's try it. That was a success. Let's make yeah. this one a success. Yeah. And, that, and then unfortunately it wasn't. Another thing I kind of wonder if we weren't ready to talk about is hereditary diseases and being sick and uh-huh. how that, yeah. like there's a really wonderful number. And I, I'm going to be honest, I don't know any of the names of these songs. <laughs> You're such a wizard with that. I don't even know the names of my favorite songs. I'm just like, <laughs> it's the one that goes, duh, 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 you know, yeah, I, <laughs> that's how I have to describe it. I can tell you the artist maybe, but not ever the name of the song. But the song that Shiloh sings about being sick. Infected. Okay. So infected is about her like not letting it. Does she have to let her illness define who she is and define the rest of her life and then there's kind of a reprise of the song later in the movie where she decides no I don't have to let the actions of my dad or my sickness or whatever my genes dictate my future and I don't think we were ready to have that conversation yet either about chronic illness or disability disadvantages whatever it is you know I don't think we were ready to talk about that I don't think we were ready to talk about that I also do not think we were ready to have a more nuanced conversation about body modification Mm -hmm. and the various reasons for it you know 2008 was still an era where we were coming off of plastic surgery not being new, but being highly criticized, you know, and being very polarizing to a lot of people, especially femme presenting people. Because, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, sort of plastic surgery because of the male gaze, um, you know, pushed to its seeming limits. On the other hand, you were just starting to have folks who were saying for a variety of reasons, bodily autonomy states a person may choose to do whatever they want with their body be that modify it or not and those conversations those two sides were just starting to really have that conversation but by and large in this era plastic surgery was viewed as being still almost lascivious Mm -hmm. in a way salacious you know done because of sexuality, and I don't mean gender, I mean straight up like sexuality in terms of like, you know, most of the people we saw getting plastic surgery were women, mm-hmm. and they were mostly seen to be getting plastic surgery to please men, mm-hmm. whether that would be to enhance, you know, to be sexually pleasing or anti aging stuff. Yeah. And we were not ready to have a fully nuanced conversation about, you know, body modification and the myriad reasons that a person could choose that for themselves that have nothing to do with other people, you know, and have everything to do with what is making them feel comfortable in their own bodies. Uh, I don't think we were having at least a writ large conversation about things like body dysmorphia at Mm -hmm. that point in time. And I think although... This movie doesn't get to the straight up nuance of it. It does sort of introduce that idea of, you know, body modification being more than just, you know, a boob job or something. Right. 
And what a fascinating person to put kind of at the forefront of that message in Paris Hilton. Absolutely. Who in 2008, although no longer at the height of her like being in front of the camera, doing a simple life, doing House of Wax, which I think came a little bit before this. I think so. Somebody who is like very much on the front of all of the newspapers and like, you know, page six and all that. So very fascinating and especially interesting to look back then now in 2023, when it is very common for folks to have augmentation. And I know that I'm pushing this sort of into a realm that this particular movie was not made in, but for trans folks and like the choices that they're allowed to and not allowed to make in terms of their own presentation and how they want to look. Uh, I saw an interesting discussion the other day, which was, it was was on Facebook comments, so take that for what you will. But (laughs) the idea was, Cis folks and people who present with their born gender are able to go and have hair plugs. They're able to go and get boob jobs, you know, and I have no feelings one way or the other about however you want to design your body in its presentation. I am fully in support of whatever you want to do, provided that you're doing it in a healthy way, you know, and going to like board certified licensed (laughs) doctors and things like that, because that's mostly my concern is like safety. Yeah, definitely. The choice that you're allowed to make at the age of 18, which is like, I would like to have a breast augmentation. And then it's as simple as going to a surgeon and saying, I would like that breast augmentation for a cis person. Yes. For trans folks, it's two psychiatrists and doctors and and years of presentation, years of hormones before you're even allowed to start the conversation of, this is how I want my body to look, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. And I think that if we look back now in 2023, we're like, well, this person can go and get whatever they want. But in 2008, we were like, oh, wait, if you let that person do one thing that they want to do their body, Uh they'll be addicted to surgery and they'll do whatever they want. And then their face is going to fall off. Yeah. That was kind of the message. And absolutely. And and that is fully an echo of where we were at in 2008 with how we felt about ourselves and how we felt about surgery. It is super common now for people to go and get fillers like lip fillers or Botox, like recreationally. Yeah. Like, regularly yes yeah. yes and and no judgment at all yeah like that that is something that has definitely happened in the past few years i feel like no judgment do whatever you want do it safely it's so wild how in 15 years since this movie has come out it's like completely different yeah the landscape is totally different and to be fair that's still for cis people specifically yes definitely that we're talking yeah. about yeah but like, it's just so strange how, like, it's only been 15 years and now we're already at this point where we're like, yeah, no, like, do you, like, after we record Juliet, do you want to go get fillers? Sure, no problem. We can go and do that. Right. We exactly. have that option. Yes. Yeah. So wild. Yeah, it really is. It was very interesting to sort of watch it through a 2023 lens, especially a 2023 lens where we're still having conversations about, you know, what states, individual states will allow trans people to do, you know, what bodily autonomy do they have for their own bodies up against what cis people inherently have the autonomy to do with their own bodies. So I think the timing of this movie, again, it was a little ahead of its time in that it was starting or participating in a conversation that most people weren't having yet. Right. They weren't ready for it. No. Let's talk about the narrator, because this is like a big thing that I wanted to talk about. Yes. We talked about this as we were watching the movie, but a thing that this movie unfortunately lacks, 
at least in terms of like a fully fleshed out narrator and something that a lot of musicals enjoy is having a narrator that kind of guides the viewer through what's happening. Yes. Because sometimes in musicals, it's not totally apparent what yeah. we're seeing yes. or what we're supposed to be understanding. And so we need a little bit of underscoring. Mm-hmm. And so we have this narrator who kind of can, in some instances, exist entirely out of the actions that are happening in the musical. And sometimes they weave themselves in with what's happening in the mm-hmm. musical. But the narrator kind of like a great example, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Chucky Gray, Charles yep. Gray, he is our narrator. Yeah. And he exists outside the movie for part of it and then later comes into, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> the ridiculousness towards the end. He kind of inserts himself into or is affected by the actions of what's happening in the book that he's reading. Yeah. I think you mentioned Evita. Yeah, yeah. So Shay and Evita, if you've seen the film with Madonna, it's Antonio Banderas' character. He is a really interesting example of this in that he is often in a scene, you know, you'll see a scene of um, workers, let's say, out on the street in Buenos Aires, and he is among them, and then he sort of steps out and narrates and tells us what is happening. And sometimes he interacts with the characters. He does have some interaction with Evita. And sometimes he doesn't. He's just kind of there in the scene intermingling. Hamilton is a different example. Aaron Burr is both an active character, a very important character throughout that whole musical. But every once in a while, he talks directly to the audience and tells you, I'm thinking of the song and I can't remember the name of it the one that's how do you write when you're running out of time where he'll be talking to Hamilton and then he'll kind of turn to the audience and say, you know, we were writing these political pamphlets. Uh, This person wrote this many and Hamilton wrote like 53 of them, you know, to give you context context. And then the story moves forward and he's back in the scene with the other characters. Yeah. And I think that this movie would have really benefited from the grave robber being our narrator yes he really should have been and he kind of functions as that at certain points in time he like sort of sets the stage when shiloh is in her mom's mausoleum and then Mm -hmm. she ends up going into the graveyard to try and capture the insect which they didn't do very much with i feel like they should have done more with the insect thing. yeah so he's kind of like setting the stage for that and sort of like drawing you into the world but his interactions with the other characters are very limited and i feel like If he was a narrator and he kind of was the one guiding us through the story versus the comic interstitials that they had and also is like participating in this world because he's a Zydrate dealer, he's a drug dealer. And so he absolutely could have been in and out of these kind of tableaus that we're in for one reason or another. And leading us through that, I really think that it would have made a stronger sort of overarching storyline versus having to put that on the characters to do that for us. Yes, absolutely. He would have been the perfect choice. And even like the actor is so compelling and so interesting to look at. And he's got a great voice. He would have been the perfect guide. And with the way they set up his character, they could have done something really interesting because we never really know if he is a figment of Shiloh's imagination or he really exists in the real world. We see Amber interact with him, but it's only when she is under the influence of, she's kind of going through withdrawal and then under the influence of Mm Zydrate. So it could be really fun in the staging to have him as a narrator threaded throughout the film and only ever actually interacting with, you know, 
other background players, but then speaking directly to Shiloh and then Amber in that in uh, Zydrate Anatomy. Right. That could have been so cool. Like those are like the little musical things that I love is when they do kind of interesting meta stuff with the characters. And I feel like they were on the road there with him, but they just never got there. And that's another instance where I wish I had seen the original musical because I would like to see the treatment of that character there because I feel like maybe that was his role in the stage version and they dialed it back for the movie and I wish they would have just gone full force with him. Yeah, and there are things that a narrator can tie together and interact with. A narrator doesn't have to be a main character. They normally don't have main character energy. They're merely there to kind of lead you from point A to point Z at the end of the movie and then to kind of wrap things up, which the grave robber does wrap things up at the end. Mm -hmm. He kind of tells us what happens that, you know, Roddy dies and the business is up for grabs, but Amber is the one who gets it and she auctions off her face that fell off and and they kind of take it back. So unfortunately, they win. The family wins. Yeah, they do. You know? And we don't really find out much more about Shiloh. She just kind of like goes off and she's like, I'm not going to let this all define me. I'm going to go and do my own thing, which is awesome. But I think if we had that narrator to kind of like underlying those punctuating points throughout the movie, it would have really been very strong. Yeah. So to that end about the ending, um, this was originally conceived of as a trilogy. This would have been the middle movie, the second installment of the trilogy. They were then going to make Repo the prequel, which I assume would have dealt with Nathan, Roddy, Marnie, and Mag as their younger selves, sort of really diving into that story that we get as backstory. And then there was supposed to be a um, sequel then that would have, the goal was to get Paris Hilton back. And I'm assuming it would have been Amber and Shiloh's story moving forward. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like both because of the lack of commercial success and because the original creators are no longer the rights holders, it doesn't seem like that's ever going to happen. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. Well, we just have to appreciate what we get. Yeah, exactly. All right. So next time on Attack of the Final Girls, we, I think this is our, this is only our second time having mystery guests. Mm -hmm. On, mm-hmm. on an episode. So we're covering a movie that I have actually never seen in totality. And I think it's Italian. Am I right? <laughs> it's Italian and German. Italian and German. Okay. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> a whole story there. Yeah. Okay. It's one of my partner's favorite horror movies. He really loves this one. We're watching Cemetery Man. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have some amazing guests on our episode to cover it with us. Yeah, it's going to be a, uh, we'll call it a horror podcast crossover. We're going to be teaming up with another horror podcast of whom we are fans and uh, they are fans of us. We just recorded an episode with them. They're going to record with us and uh, we'll let you know. Obviously, you'll be able to hear ours next. We'll let you know when you can hear our appearance on their show. All will be revealed next time. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.